All right. Um, all right. All right. <laughs> yes, thank you very much, everyone. That was very helpful. So last week was a rough one. Remember where you borrowed that little trick from J.D. Greer where he tells his people this one's going to be hard for you? <clears throat> I'm going to ask you to do it again this week and say this week's going to be even worse. Next to each other, left and right, go ahead. This one's going to be even worse for you. Go ahead, tell them you're praying for them. It's going to be worse. <clears throat> We're talking about choosing injustice. We're continuing in 1 Peter. This is a really hard series of messages on what it means to be exiles in the world and be part of this royal priesthood. Have you personally ever been outraged by injustice? Especially when you or the cause you champion is the victim of that injustice. <clears throat> in seventh grade, while riding a bus to school, I got blamed for punching the kid behind me. I was outraged. It was unfair. Now, <clears throat> I can understand looking back why I got blamed, because I had punched the kid behind me before. <laughs> but not this day. There was a ruckus. There was a punch. It was the kid in front of me who wanted to punch the kid behind me. I ducked to let him get through, because I don't want any part of it. I'm Switzerland. <clears throat> and he punched the kid, and he screams out in pain. The bus driver looks in his big 18-foot mirror they have, you know, so they can see everyone. And you can see his head shake. You again, huh, Joey? <laughs> what? What are you talking about? I didn't do it. I was outraged. It was unfair. School bus justice was a travesty. And I set out that day with one goal. I was going to fix school bus society. I organized a group. <clears throat> we had uh, protests scheduled. We were ready to roll. And then my mom said, you know, if you get kicked off the bus, you're walking every day four miles to school. <laughs> so I thought better of it. There was a greater cause at stake. I didn't want to walk eight miles, four there and four back, in Florida, in the snow, uphill. So I took the hit, I moved on, <clears throat> and I decided to start sitting right behind the bus driver. Smart. Today, moral outrage over injustice and inequality is quite fashionable. Both sides of this political spectrum, liberals, conservatives, everyone has moral outrage. <clears throat> And promises to deliver, <clears throat> excuse me, equality and justice that caters to the opinions of a particular political base is something almost every politician does now in their messaging. But the definition, frankly, <clears throat> of equality and justice is often quite subjective, is it not? Depending upon your background, your ethnic background, where you're from, it varies greatly between individuals and in people groups. <clears throat> and there's a reason. <clears throat> I think humans naturally, naturally will desire this idea of inequality and injustice, especially when they're suffering it. We want it to be eradicated. And we also rejoice when we see the guilty punished. <clears throat> Fighting, scratching, clawing for equality and justice 
frankly becomes exhausting and all-consuming. It is often driven by rage, self-righteousness, and resentment. <clears throat> so question, <clears throat> with all that in mind, are Christians called to fight for our opinion of what equality and justice should be from a biblical perspective? If so, how much of a priority should that fight be in our priesthood? And is it possible that our passion for earthly justice and equality, whatever that may be, is it possible that could interfere with our priesthood? Let's look at the passage this week. It's a little bit longer. <clears throat> Chapter 2, verse 18 to 25. <clears throat> Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God. One endures sorrow while suffering unjustly, like I did on the bus. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was the deceit found in his mouth. Yet when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live, right, live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Look at the history of this passage. I want to talk about slaves and masters. Now, before I get started, understand... <clears throat> this really isn't a sermon about slavery. I think we all understand the evils of slavery. But there is a historical context here that gives us a spiritual application that should change the way we interact with society today. I want to talk about slavery in Rome. I'm going to give you two Greek words real quick before we start. Despotes. That's the first Greek word. It means absolute owner and authority over a house. We get the English word despot. There's a next word I want you to see, oikotos, from the Greek word oikos, which means house. So what he's saying is you are to be subject to the masters, the despots of the houses. They're both plural words. You be subject to despots of the houses in which you live. And as the Roman Empire continued to expand, conquered people groups were often enslaved in massive numbers. It was a staple in Roman society and a big part of their economy. And slaves were not considered people with any rights. They were considered, in fact, personal property to those who owned them with no benefits of Roman citizenship, <clears throat> no right to justice, These slaves, or bond servants as they were also called, <clears throat> would serve the owner of a household and all of its members, including, oftentimes, other slaves. Slaves could be, and it wasn't just what you think, slaves in this day and age could be anything from farmers to doctors to lawyers, accountants, cooked, cooks, skill, skilled laborers, any and every professional skill set could fall into slavery. 
And people became slaves primarily through three means. The first one, obviously, I talked about was conquest. But also, sometimes people would amass massive financial debt and would not be able to get out of it. And so they would choose to be bond servants or slave to work that debt off. Sometimes people volunteered to be slaves out of desperation because they could not provide for themselves. And they sought the safety of being part of a good despots, a good master's house, where they would serve and work and get food and shelter and even clothing. And he talks about these gentle masters and these cruel masters or unjust masters. And we're going to see here they're actually called crooked masters. So while this system of slavery was often unjust and unfair, some of the relationships between slave and master were actually mutually beneficial. Obviously, serving right a gentle master was easier. They provide food. They provide shelter. Even education for a slave's children. <clears throat> some of them went really above and beyond. And as equal and as unjust as the system was, in some circumstances, it became a peaceful, beneficial arrangement. But of course, most masters weren't gentle. They were what Peter calls unjust. And the word we get is scolios. You heard scoliosis of the spine. It means a curved spine. Scolios means crooked, perverse, unfair, harsh. Ungracious, unjust masters who abused their slaves, beat them, mistreated them, tricked them into servitude, and forced them to stay there, sometimes tricking them in just to sell them to someone else to profit off of the slave trade. Now, because it was so widespread, we understand there was certainly slavery within the church. It was so pervasive in first century Rome. In fact, most Christians who became Christians, especially the Gentiles, were likely slaves of one type or another. Yet within the church, something interesting happened. Masters and slaves often lived together in Christ in harmony and unity. We see in Galatians chapter 3, 28, Paul even says this. There is no Jew nor Greek, so he understands there's no ethnic difference. There is no slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What he does there is he lays out all the different ways that people would think of themselves as better than another. Jew better, being better than Greeks, uh, masters being better than slaves, men being better than women. And Paul says none of that is true. You're all equal in Christ. <clears throat> And what began to happen, a miracle actually, the church began to turn this evil institution of slavery into this kind of like an employer-employee relationship, and they began to trust each other to do the right thing. Often these master-slave relationships within the church became really like family. Very special, just like if you remember back to our Surviving in Egypt series, book out in six weeks, hint, hint. Joseph and Pharaoh's relationship became that way, did it not? Joseph was a slave. <clears throat> so somehow Christians displayed equality within an unequal, unjust system. Slaves and masters outside of the church began to notice. And when these people worshiped together, these slaves and masters, sometimes who were part of, most of the time, been part of the same worshiping group, they worshiped together as equals. 
It was an extraordinary witness in society. This was the most, <clears throat> the relation between slave and master had the most animosity of any in the Roman Empire, and somehow the church got this vision of, let's turn this into a testimony. <clears throat> I think the church today is called to live in the same way, with extraordinary trust between one another, unity and peace, but sadly, for a myriad of reasons, we often fail. Sometimes we go looking for a way to communicate that we're different and distract the peace and unity. Let's look at the spiritual part about this. What about God? What did he do and why and how did he do it? I've called this part called to inequality. And I put a question mark there because it doesn't seem like a biblical thing, does it? <clears throat> you know, this thing I just shared with you about the church, how they viewed slavery. Listen, it wasn't easy. It was a constant struggle in this fast-growing first-century church movement. Their unity was constantly tested, and it took intentional daily effort. Because Here's what would happen. Many new believers would come to Christ as slaves, and they passionately believed that freedom in Christ also meant freedom from slavery. Makes sense. Especially if their masters were believers. They felt, look, we're equals in Christ. I should be released. I am free from sin. I should be free from being your slave. And masters who actually treated their slaves well would also, though, disagree. Since they were, even if they set the slave free by law, they were expected, and by church custom, right, because they outline this in Acts chapter 2, when everybody would bring everything together to make sure nobody went without they were expected to still continue to provide for those slaves, even if they were free. So you could see, right, a little bit of a conflict. <clears throat> that was the custom in the early church. They would look out for each other. This became an intense internal debate that reared up constantly. And these internal rifts would begin to make certain local churches mimic the debate in society. They looked exactly the same. Kind of like how we look sometimes when we start arguing politics. It made them look like every other group. It was such a prevalent issue. The apostles addressed this specific slavery issue many times in their apostolic writings, and they addressed both the masters and the slaves. Look what James says to those who would like to revere masters. If any of you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man or the slave, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. And he says, if you do that, you've become a judge of character. See, this sort of inequality was rampant throughout gatherings in this society. And the church sometimes fell into the trap of mimicking it. As a matter of fact, in Thessalonians... Paul addresses slaves who felt entitled to a free ride from the church. Freedom and being provided for. He says, if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. So you can see, this was intense. And I just gave you two examples. There's about eight examples. So clearly, it was an ongoing issue. How do we deal with this system of slavery within the church? The fact is, they were all called to unity. <clears throat> Peter and the apostles, listen carefully. This is so important. They were not sanctioning slavery. That is not what they were doing. Far from it. 
but obedience to your master, whether they be gentle or scolios, crooked. It just seems like demanding that is unfair and unjust. Look what Paul says in Ephesians 6. It's just, bondservants, obey your earthly master with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Whoa. Rendering service with a good will, as to the Lord and not to man. What? Pretend like you're serving Jesus? Masters, do the same to them. Uh Uh-oh. Stop your threatening knowing he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Then look what he says in 1 Corinthians. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant? Called, by the way, means when you become a Christian. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. The actual translation is don't obsess over that. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. But he says, stay in the condition in which you were called. What he's saying is, the gospel isn't about freeing you from the ills of society. It is not a social prosperity gospel. It is not even a social justice gospel. It is a kingdom gospel gospel. And he says, that is not your main concern. See, Paul addressed these issues in a personal letter that he wrote to Philemon about a guy named Onesimus, an unbelieving slave who ran away. He ran away from his believing master, Philemon, went to Rome, and by God's sovereign grace, ran into Paul, heard the gospel, and became a child of God. What did Paul do with Onesimus? He sent him back to Philemon to resume his role as a servant. And he said, you are to become the best servant to Philemon that you can be. He taught Onesimus to make his priesthood the priority over his freedom. And Philemon, he wrote a letter to Philemon. He says, you are to completely and fully forgive Onesimus, not only for running away, but for stealing from you. Philemon, forgive Onesimus because you know that you owe me your own life besides. Some people think that that could mean that Philemon was perhaps a slave to Paul at once. Why would Peter and Paul command such a thing? I'll tell you why. Because the first century church had a much more pressing, higher priority than transforming their culture and society. And they give Jesus as the example. The apostles never taught, ever, nor did Jesus ever teach, that the role of the church was to reform its culture into what they thought it should be. Not one, I challenge you, find it in Scripture. Not one time. Whether you're a progressive or whether you're a conservative, you have a much higher transcendent priority than making society look like your moral code. And that is this, your priesthood. And what is the priesthood again, just in case you forgot, you weren't here the last couple of weeks? Proclaiming the gospel, living with integrity, and doing the best job you can at your profession, including if it's as a bondservant. 
<clears throat> Peter declares that the way Jesus dealt with injustice and equality, which, by the way, he certainly faced, did he not? He said that example is the example to all believers. And here it is in today's passage. <clears throat> he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And he goes on a little bit more, and he says, Our Lord Jesus set the example of suffering injustice and inequality. He did it because of you. See, this is the whole foundation of Christianity. Its very essence is our Lord suffering injustice and inequality on your behalf. <clears throat> when the church made the kingdom a priority over injustice, like slavery, and when the church was living in unity, these, these churches that were able to do this became a stunning testimony. They looked completely different than anyone else around. In a society that was full of distrust, a society full of resentment and anger over slavery, the church provided a different way to live. They created a lifestyle. Think about this. They created a lifestyle of grace within a system of inequality, and they turned it into a powerful witness where they were fulfilling one of their roles as a priest, proclaiming the gospel in an empire and they never did it without, they never did it with one single rally or protest or riot. And get this, <clears throat> a little added bonus. Starting with the birth of the church, if you look back and you were able to graph slavery like you would a stock, that's when you begin to see 2,000 years ago the concept of slavery start to decline. All before human history, slavery did nothing but increase. Something happened when God started his kingdom and the church became the kingdom on earth. Slavery started to decline, and it's taken 2,000 years, and we're not completely there yet. But as the gospel continues to be spread, things like slavery continue to melt away. All right, personal <clears throat> The kingdom over justice? This was the sermon preview this week. If you were asked to suffer severe earthly injustice for the sake of kingdom work, would you be willing? So what if you were in the same position as first century slaves who became a part of the church and they were asked to do this? What if you were asked to do this? Look, Equality and justice are things we all desire. But your desire for justice must never get in the way of your priesthood. In fact, the priesthood demands that we be willing to suffer unjustly for the sake of the gospel and the kingdom of heaven. You know, I think of, I mean, we think about, oh, man, America has so many problems, and we do, injustice, inequality, unfairness, cheating, all that kind of stuff. We're not really suffering injustice. You know who really is? I think of foreign missionaries that are called to hostile regions 
Some of them are my dearest friends I went to college with. They willingly suffer injustice daily for the sake of being able to stay there and preach the gospel. That's a kingdom mindset. Their willingness to endure injustice for the sake of the kingdom, it really kind of convicts me, and it also inspires me to stop and evaluate just how much of a crybaby I really am about injustice. We do it for the Lord's sake. He says that. Do it for the Lord's sake. Remember we learned that last week. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 9.24 or 9.23. I do it all, and he's talking about suffering. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessing. Share means proclaim. Paul says, I will put up with just about any inequity, any injustice, any unfairness, if it means I still get to preach. Peter says in this book, in 1 Peter, in chapter 1, verse 1, what does he call them? Elect exiles in a hostile land. Church, we are not called to reform society into what we think it should look like. But we are called to be beacons within it. The world today is, in fact, if we're honest, a cesspool of injustice and inequality. No matter how hard you fight, it will always be so until Jesus returns. Now, look, if you don't know Jesus or if Jesus is kind of like a hobby for you, then fighting and scratching and clawing for your view of equality and justice in society is all you have. Good luck with that. You're never going to win until Jesus returns. But for us to have power in society, our power to influence society isn't born out of our passion for justice, but our passion for the gospel. And it's also born out of a passionate, fully committed priesthood. A passion birth when we truly learn to live in hope for the righteousness and justice in the kingdom of heaven that is to come. Look, if you don't believe that that's coming, then go ahead and fight. But if you are a child of God who understands there is a kingdom coming that is here now and will one day continue to be here in full effect, when that is your hope, you recognize, I don't have to be so obsessed about earthly justice anymore. A passion so intense, you're willing to suffer injustice and equity for the sake of the gospel. So the last point I'm going to ask you today, are you there yet? Remember, are you willing to suffer injustice for the sake of your priesthood? Listen, I'm your pastor. I'm your friend. Well, for most of you. No, I'm just kidding, all of you. Look, I love you. I love my church. But even after 10 really hard-hitting sermons in 1 Peter, some of you still aren't getting it. You still aren't grasping what it means to live a life that, as the series title says, is a daily reminder to remember the cross. Perhaps today, as we go forward and we finish up this sermon, for the first time, you're going to start 
to really understand what Jesus said when he talked about the true cost of discipleship and following him. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Profit doesn't mean gold and silver. It means you get the life you want that you think you deserve, the justice, the equality. That's a really hard verse. And what we really mostly do as Christians is we just say, well, he doesn't really mean that. There's probably some sort of hidden meaning, but I haven't figured it out in the Greek. <laughs> no, the Greek's even worse. <laughs> I'm just telling you. <laughs> Taking up your cross means putting your earthly priorities, no matter how good they may be, they now become second to the priesthood. Even if it means you might suffer unfairness or injustice for the spiritual sake of that priesthood and the kingdom of God. That's what he's asking first century Christians to do. And yes, it is radical. Yes, it is ridiculous. Yes, it is extreme. And it is an unreasonable choice to ask someone to make. Jesus and the apostles, however, are asking us to make it. And Jesus says in Luke 9, 23 that we just read that it's going to have to be a daily choice to take up your cross, to put all your passions aside, even your passion for justice. Look what he says in Luke 9, 60. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Again, one of the roles of the priesthood, right? Church, this is an everyday choice that you have to make to put the kingdom over your life, including your thirst for what your opinion is of justice. Whether it be political justice, personal justice, economic justice, social justice, Libertarian, personal free liberty justice, all of those, all of them are secondary to this call. Now, many of you are silently saying within your heart, wow, I'm nowhere near ready for that kind of commitment today. But church, this is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, a daily choice to suffer those injustices, if you are called to do so for his sake. Just as Jesus did for you. Now, you may not like it, right? But if you know Jesus and you, and you have some sort of understanding of the priesthood, you probably get it. You understand it. You see what he's saying, but you probably don't like it, and even if you get it, you still find a way to push this command aside almost daily because your thirst for justice is far too great, far greater than your thirst for righteousness. Look, it's okay to admit it on those days that this is true, that that day is a day that you have chosen to be a priest in waiting instead of a priest. Just admit it. 
Just admit it. No, I'm not going to be a priest today. I'm going after my own personal justice. <laughs> no matter what it looks like, personal, political, social, whatever. The bottom line is that day you're just not willing to serve the kingdom. You would rather serve your thirst for justice and equality. So how do we get there? How can we get to the point where we're making the daily choice? Okay, kingdom over me. I'm picking up my cross. I'm following Jesus. I'm abandoning these other things for this. Maybe it starts by being grateful that you won't suffer the eternal justice that you actually deserve. Now, if you don't believe in eternity, then there's no reason to pick up your cross. But if you do, the gratefulness for escaping what justice really you got coming to you should change your priorities. And why is that? Because Christ chose to suffer inequality and injustice for your sake with the ultimate price, his life. Perhaps that's what we need to do to daily choose the kingdom as a higher priority in fighting for the justice that we want. If you're going to be a true disciple, a member of the royal priesthood, this is how far, I'm telling you, this is how far you must be willing to go to do it. Now today, you can continue, if you want, to ignore this command and keep misplacing your passions on earthly justice. But I think I've done my job. At least now you know that each day that you don't make the kingdom a priority, you're choosing not to follow Jesus. It's another day that your life is more important than his and the priesthood. Father, this is a tough passage. But when I think of what you asked those first century believers to do, man, I haven't been challenged anywhere close to that. Lord, I don't know if I'm ready to pick up my cross if the priesthood becomes really costly. I hope I am. I, I trust that that your work in our hearts and our lives has brought us to the place and has given us enough passion and faith and trust and hope and eternity and your word and your spirit and all those things that if we are faced with a choice as a church at Grace Life that we would say, you know what? We really don't like how things are going, but it doesn't matter. We choose the priesthood. We choose proclaiming. We choose integrity and we choose being the best that we can be at where you have put us. <clears throat> Lord, we're going to have to ask you to intervene in our heart and mind to know when we have decided to not pick up our cross and follow you. I imagine it happens quite often each day. It's really an overwhelming, disconcerting task. <laughs> But we're thankful that you give us, through confession and repentance, a way to stay constantly connected to you. Heavenly Father, we are your priests. You have made us exiles in this chaotic, unjust world. And we commit to you 
that that will be our priority over anything and everything else. In Jesus' name, amen.